All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Ethan. <sighs> so the last time I preached, not here actually, was about six months ago, actually probably a little bit further back. It was right first day of Advent over at in Newport Chapel. So it's been about that long since I've been behind a pulpit. So be ready, because it's been a while. Uh, and any anyone who knows a preacher that has not been behind a pulpit for a while usually means they've got a lot in their head and they don't have a lot of time. So um, there's that aspect of it. Um, this one, uh, this message actually came on the last day of, uh, of Pastor Eric's uh, time with us. Um, Eric, I love you. Don't take this personally because I'm sorry, not sorry. But God actually gave this to me during his sermon. So I have actually no idea what he talked about. Um, I have to go back and watch that one. Uh, thankfully, we record things like that. Uh, but I also know this is where God's directing us. And then uh, not too much longer, um, Jason, the elders, they, they asked me, hey, June 11th, can you preach? I'm like, yeah, sure. I already got something. Uh, <laughs> funny how that works. Um, confirming all those things. And they did ask me um, about talking about transition. How do we handle transition? And obviously, uh, that's a pretty big word. Um, anyone been in transition before? Thank you. Yes, all of us have been in transition before. Uh, you know, e even a newborn infant just transitioned into this world. There's a little shock factor uh, in their life, all right, when, when they, they, they come out of the mother's womb and, oh, bright lights. All right, so we've all been in transition if you're in this room right now, right? And transition has been being used quite frequently in our church, and for good reason. Because what does it mean? You know, this is a definition out there. It's a, it is the process or a period of changing from one state or condition to another. As we said, transitions are part of life. It's actually critical uh, for us to transition. Uh, for one to grow, mature, improve, one must transition. Uh, this could apply to a community and a culture as well, um, not just an individual. Um, imagine, again, if you never transition at a physical level and we were all just the human, the human race wouldn't survive, right? We'd all be infants, and if you don't know, if you've never had an infant in your hand, they're completely dependent upon you as an adult. So if we never transition physically, uh, we just wouldn't be here. Uh, you know, or uh, the mere fact that even if we did, if you didn't transition emotionally and mentally in, in those status points, uh, we all be living in our parents' basement still. <laughs> no offense if you are, I get the economy. I'm not talking about that, but that's our reality, okay? Uh, if we didn't transition as a human race, <laughs> we wouldn't have this thing called electricity and air conditioning and all these lovely things that we have around us, the technology. Um, this church probably wouldn't be constructed the way it is. This comfortable chairs you're in right now. Yeah, those cushions, they feel nice, don't they? Um, you know, those different things. We, we, our medical system, who doesn't like having advances? You know, I'm in the military, if you don't know that. And, you know, we've come a long way to when you got shot, we don't cut off your leg. That's a good, that's a good medical advance. I'm just going to throw that one out there. That was pretty much life and death out there uh, with any kind of gunshot wound, right? So uh, we have medical advances. Um, these are all transitions in our world. And then if you think about it just as a world, right, weather, right, who likes four seasons? I know some of you like perpetual summer. I am not one of those people. That's why I was happy to move up 
above the Mason-Dixon line, uh, you know, and Cape Cod is very tempered from where I grew up um, in Michigan and all that. But, you know, without seasons, without the, the, the transitions that our world does naturally, we would, our ecosystem would collapse. I'm not a scientist, but I'm going to throw that one out there. Um, any scientist is welcome probably to question that or correct me, but I'm going to go with that. But also transitions, let's be honest, can cause worry and anxiety, right? Remember leaving home for the first time or going to a new town uh, or maybe going off to college or starting your first job, starting a career, getting married, having kids, all things that can cause us that anxiety and transition because we can become fearful of the unknown or feel unequipped of what may come. I remember moving up here. Uh, to, to this place called Massachusetts, Cape Cod, and I was living in Virginia with my family. We were in the midst of selling a house, trying to figure out. I'm coming, if you don't know my job, I'm a Navy chaplain, and that means I bounce around between different services, and so I served the Coast Guard here the past four years. I actually just gave that up Friday, and I'm transitioning back over to the Navy here at the end of July, and I've got some time in between uh, to get myself ready. Um, but the reality is, uh, the transition, there was a lot of stress, there was a lot of anxiety, and I remember at one point it was just overwhelming me, right, to the point where I was in my car about having a mental, emotional breakdown. My family wasn't in there with me, don't worry. Uh, and, and I remember just having everything hitting me and then feeling God's peace and saying, just pray. I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds good. I'm a chaplain, you guys. I, I'm a minister. I'm licensed. Hey, yeah, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't praying, but it was also overwhelming and then I prayed, and just that peace came over because I refocused on who was important. Because transitions are uncomfortable. They are. We don't usually like transitions. Sometimes we do, but most of the time they, they kind of make us feel uncomfortable. But again, they're necessary. They're necessary, and usually they're for our own well-being for the majority of the time. And if we're honest, it is necessary for us as a church, locally, as Living Hope Family Church, for a transition to happen, for us to continue in what God has for us. So now we establish transition is important, right? We're in agreement with that. But how we transition is actually key. This is an aspect that we must grasp, not just at a corporate level, but also a personal level. And so how this sermon will go, it's going to seem like I'm going a lot of tangents, but I'm not. All right. It is all encompassing. It will all make sense, hopefully, by the end. If not, you can always ask me more questions at the end. I do not mind. But they are so important is the how. There are multi-billion dollar businesses who transition wrong because they put the wrong people in place, because they go after something they think is right on paper, when honestly they didn't ask the right questions behind the scenes, and they lose billions of dollars. Anyone ever had a billion dollars? Does anyone know how much a billion dollars? I love this lovely thing. My family probably have heard this enough times. The people in my ministry heard it enough times. Do you actually know how much a billion dollars is? If you were given $10,000 a day since the birth of our nation to today, you still wouldn't have a billion dollars. And companies can lose it like that in years or less than a year because they transitioned incorrectly. They put someone in the seat who did not share their same values did not 
have the goals that were correct for that company. However, as a church, we don't deal with money. We deal with something much more precious, and it's called souls. Because that is what God has called us to. The other difference we have, though, is we always actually have someone in charge. When no human is appointed. This understanding is imperative as we transition. Because we can either rely on God or man in our own understanding. There's no in-between. We can see this difference in, a, in, in the Bible, thankfully, in a period of transition where two very prominent stories in the Bible. Ironically, both these leaders' names have the same root word meaning name. It's Joshua and Jesus, which means God is salvation. If you didn't know Jesus was the root for Joshua, came from Joshua, now you do. They are both the same, and they have really both really important stories. Because they are both huge transition. Joshua was leading the, the, the Hebrews to become Israel. That is a huge thing. They are now becoming a nation. Jesus, I hope I don't have to explain that one, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but it is in a change and a transition of what it meant to be a people, the kingdom of God on earth. And so we're going to be looking at these two and understanding and knowing that God is salvation in our lives and what that truly means for us. The problem is, if you know anything, those two transitions ended very differently. Very differently. And so we got to see why. Because why has nothing to do because they have bad leadership, right? Joshua is a great leader. Jesus, really hope, is a great leader. <laughs> Hopefully you can agree with that one. Uh, cultural differences and time periods, that really didn't matter. The world is the world. There was evil out there. Temptations out there. It wasn't because they didn't have enough money or any other excuse. The real difference was between how they focused on God. And so if you want to, we're going to be going through. I'm just going to give you all of them. Don't expect, and I'll, and I'll work us through here as we go, because I'm going to be bouncing through different scriptures to get through those points. Um, my main focuses are going to come out of Joshua 24, uh, with some of those verses in there, uh, starting with verse 14. So if you want to turn there just to be ready. Other portions that we're going to go to is going to be in Judges 2 uh, and Judges 21, and then eventually we'll make our way to Acts um, I'm not going to take you through the Gospels too much. We will talk about Jesus in the Gospels, but I don't have that kind of time. So um, we're going to go there. So if you want to, again, turn with me to Joshua 24 uh, and verse 14. Now, again, Joshua, right? Uh, he led the Hebrews to the promised land. This is, this is part of their promise. This was a covenant promise from the time of Abraham uh, that God gave uh, Abraham. And now the descendants, the, these 12 tribes of Israel, are coming in to establish themselves and conquer this land. They are major battles. Joshua led them through the major battles, not the minor battles. We see that later on at, at the end of Joshua. They are meant to take care of it um, after they kind of have disrupted the main core central um, power structures there. Um, we have to remember that entire conquest was, was done by a bunch of slaves. Hi, what was your former profession? Hi, I was a slave in Egypt. Or my parents were a slave in Egypt. Just going to let you know, that you don't train slaves in military combat. It's kind of 
counterproductive to what you want to do. If you follow Aegis pattern is, oh, they're getting too big. We're going to be outnumbered. So let's go ahead and kill their firstborns. Hence the story of Moses. Why would you ever train them in any swords or anything to give them that kind of skill set? This is a nation literally going into an outnumbered, in a sense, outmanned, outgunned everything as they cross the river Jordan to go and conquer Canaan. They really had no business winning. As we said earlier, but God. The only reason they did win was because of God. I mean, if you take their first battle in Jericho, what did they do? If you're like me, I go straight to VeggieTales. I don't know how many VeggieTale fans we have out there, but I'm seeing the grapes. Of, uh, the, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, you fans out there, right? Marching around and they're throwing slushies at them, right? Whatever the case may be. But the reality is Jericho, right? Hey, day one, go march around. Quiet, silent. An entire nation being quiet. I can't get four kids in my household to be quiet sometimes at once, let alone for an entire day marching around the city. These are thousands, if not millions of people marching. Day one. Uh, by the way, do that again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Seventh day. How many times did they have to do it? Seven. Because we couldn't have enough of walking around already. They got their steps in. They were wearing their Fitbits, right? They got their steps in. And then at the end, all they did was, all right, you've been so quiet, this silent, you surround the city and yell and trumpet and clare and And what happens? This entire city falls. The armies are defeated. The people are killed. And there was not a sword lifted. They weren't even, they were beaten by God by the faithfulness of slaves. Basically how it went. And when they didn't, weren't obedient to God, there were consequences, as the next battle showed, right? There were things that happened. And it's hard because we sit there and we're in, you know, as a human, I sit there and I'm like, wow. Especially as a Christian, as that, I'm like, man, that's a tough. I mean, really, when you read it from a human aspect, that, that is a tough thing to read about. Like, God is sending these people in, and they are literally wiping people out to their doom. Not just a doom to their death, and it's just a physical realm. We understand there is condemnation and, 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 and furtherness because these people are obviously not people of God. That's a, that's a tough thing to read, really, at a context, at a human level, but why? Because God knew that this wasn't some just physical battle and fulfilling a promise. God understood that the people around them and that these and his people, these Hebrews, would not be spiritually ready to allow these people. They were a spiritual threat, not a physical threat. Like I just said, God takes care of the physical for that. He destroyed them all. He was worried about the spiritual threats that they possessed. Because God's law, let's be honest, it it, it is a hard law. Like, we understand, we could not fulfill God's law, right? But God had to put it in place because he's a just God, and a just God cannot sit there and, you know, judge you and say, you've done evil in my sight, and you're like, what was evil in your sight? I don't know. So God gave a law. 
But that really wasn't just the only purpose of the law. See, if we, if we understand the law, the law was actually more, and, and this whole thing called the covenant was dealt with because God, it was more like a marriage covenant, not like a king serf covenant. There was different covenants in that day, just to let you know. This one was more uh, ordered like a marriage covenant. There was supposed to be a marriage between uh, God and his people. And so God sits there like, listen, if you're going to be my people, aka if you're going to be my bride, if you're going to be that spouse to me, this is what it means to be my people. Right? And so they broke this covenant, right? Anyone here have marriage boundaries? I really hope there's more hands that go up than nothing. Okay. All right, good. So there's a few nods. I'm a little concerned we might have to divert this sermon into something totally different. Uh, That might have been a Holy Spirit moment. No. All right. So we have boundaries, right? I mean, every healthy relationship, regardless, has boundaries. You have boundaries with your, your spouse. You have boundaries with your friends. You should have boundaries with your work. You should have boundaries with your kids. Boundaries are healthy. And that is really what God is saying. Hey, listen, when you sin, it's a violation of a boundary. It's not just bad things. Get that shift, because that's a really important shift that the American church, and we're going to talk about the American church later, but we have, we have made things that we talk about sin, 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 but we don't really talk about what that's, why that's so bad, other than you'll go to hell if you sin. Yeah, okay, why is that bad? Because it's not even that this place is burning and on fire and everything like that. It's because sin is a boundary violation in God's relationship with us. Just like if, you know, your spouse has an affair, it's very likely that that marriage is going to end. And you will be separated. Step into that. You will be separated for God for all eternity. And when you experience God and you know who God is and that love and that perfection and everything of that nature, you don't want to be separated from that. And sin does that. When you focus on the relationship with God, the sin kind of starts leaving on its own. As you close closer to God, those things, it doesn't mean you won't make mistakes, and it doesn't mean you're not going to get exposed, but those things start making it easier. Any skiers in here? Anyone? Okay, I'm going to be really honest. I'm not a skier, but I talk to skiers. So I remember the first time I'm like, I'm always nervous about skiing because I'm afraid I'm going to hit a tree. And what's the number one rule about not hitting a tree when you ski, downhill ski? Does anyone know? No, it's don't focus on the trees. Right. If you focus on the trees, you'll hit the tree. Is that true, skiers? Have you heard that before? Yes, I get a little couple of head nods. Yeah. All right, good. But if you focus on the path, you'll probably stay on the path. If you focus on sin, you're probably going to sin. If you focus on the path with God, you'll probably follow God. Hear that difference. Sin is still bad. We don't want sin in our lives. But if we focus on our path with God and our relationship with God, I can promise you that sin. This is, this is me at what, 41 years of knowledge and things that I've had to deal with where I've sat behind and been in your chairs and there's nothing about sin, sin, sin. And I wondered, why did I struggle with sin, sin, sin so much? And then God and the Holy Spirit gave me revelation and said, focus on me. And I did. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so much easier. Focus on God. This world will always have those temptations, just as Canaanites were a temptation. You have to remember God, because Joshua, at the end, 
here coming in verse 14 we of chapter 24. It's very popular. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods of your father. Serve beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites who, whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Oh, it's such a popular verse. I mean, look, listen to those words. He's like, listen. After God's brought him into this land, given them promises, he's like, you still have a choice. We all have choices to serve God or not. It's always a choice. So he's like, listen, if you want to serve the, the gods of your fathers and your ancestors, go ahead. God will let you. You want to serve those, those gods that the Amorites, those people and Canaanites and, and all these things that they serve? Go ahead. And they're like, well, no, 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 far from it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. And he's, and he's like, okay. So, then, so they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll do this. And, and then Joshua comes back, and it's the most <sighs> inspiring thing to tell the people who just said, I'll devote myself to God. And he says, and, and he's like, and, but Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. You don't hear that much from a preacher after they say, who wants to accept Jesus? Oh, great. You can't accept Jesus. <laughs> right? You, you don't hear that much. The challenge to how hard it is. Because it is hard. And, and, and when he talks about no forgiveness of sins as a people, he's really talking to them as a nation. He's talking about, listen, when you as sin as a people, not that there's these individuals sinning, but when you as a people, as a corporate convert and start sinning and going against God. And we have to understand why that was, because when you see later in the Old Testament, every time he would use terminology like you are whoring after other gods, a.k.a. you are having affairs when you serve other gods or pervert what it is, our relationship. And so there's a warning And that's a prophetic warning in a ways because we see how it plays out for the rest of history in the Old Testament, right? We see what happens when they do not have God at the forefront of their lives, when they do not value the relationship with God. We see it as a foreshadowing of the eternal punishment awaiting us, that total separation from God. And there seems to be hope when you get to verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. That seems hopeful, but it stops because they didn't serve the Lord after. It gives no indication. Joshua could have very much ended here and we could have gone into some other written, I don't know, because that's where it stopped. The people in place, the leadership they had, the, the, the people of Israel were, were relying on just the men and the elders or Joshua and the elders or, or, those, or those humans who basically saw everything that happened during this time of conquest and, and everything like that. Because once they all left, 
it went a totally different direction. They were reliant on their testimonies. They were reliant on these people to keep them in line. They heard the stories and the testimonies, but it didn't deepen their faith. It didn't get them to have their own testimonies, their own faith, their own relationship with God. God became a stranger year after year after year. And that's where we suddenly get to turn. Oops, I turned too far. To Judges. Anyone read the book of Judges? It's a doozy. They could make a Netflix series on Judges. It would be quite popular. We start seeing what happens when people are focused on the physical, the man, our own devices. We don't remember God and the relationship we have. Verse, chapter 2, verse 11. It just reads like this, and, I, and it goes right into verse 12. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And that's the theme of Judges. They did. You see that phrase. That phrase in verse 11, you see over and over and over. They continue to do this to that, to the site, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Until you get to verse, here it is, the very last verse of Judges. It makes you just feel so hopeful for them. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. The concept of God is gone. We went from what was evil in the sight of the Lord down to they have no king and they did what was right in their own eyes. That is a significant shift over the course of many, many years. There's a great series on Judges, just to let you know if you got that right now, media. Um, J.D. Greer, I think it's his name, goes through this, and, and I'll admit some of this came from him because I just actually finished this series with my, uh, my people on uh, Tuesday. So, hey, God's got timing, right? Um, and the moment I heard, I'm like, oh, this is going to my third sermon. <laughs> he talks about how at the end there, that verse 25, what got him there, he calls them kind of atheistic believers of some sort, whether he uses the terms atheist Christians, he probably would say atheistic Jews here or Hebrews or Israelites. Um, I might call them agnostic in a way, whatever you want to dice it up, it really doesn't matter because at this point they have total abandonment to God as their king. They are focused on themselves and what is right for themselves and not what's right to God. And the reason is, and these are the things from him he talks about, right, is that, you know, they first redefine God to their liking, rather aligning themselves to who God is and worship him as he is. He does a great point of saying that's a violation of the second commandment. 
See, the first commandment is serve no other gods. What's the second commandment? Don't make any graven idols. Notice he didn't say any graven idols of other gods. He just said don't make any graven idols, images. At the end, the story before it, there was this man and, and, and everything like that. We'll just put it down real short. He devoted, they devoted silver to God and said, I'm going to give this to God. I'm going to give this silver to God. And, and it's, it's designated if we get back the silver, we'll, de- we'll, we'll donate to God. We will give that to God. And so they take a portion of it, melt it down, and make an idol of God, of Yahweh. Good intent. Horrible execution. It was a sin. There are a lot of people who have good intent and still sin against God. There are a lot of churches that have good intent, but they're still sinning against God. We have to be aware of these things. We have to be aware that sometimes as we lose leadership and we don't keep our eyes on Christ and these things, these things happen. Why? Because when you make an idol of God and you put him on a table, you start controlling your God. He's no longer God. You are. The other thing they did was they used God instead of worship God. God, if I do this for God, he owes me. We see this in reverse. God, if you give me this, I'll do this for you. I didn't know God was so easily manipulated. And the other thing he points out in that series at the end was what happens in the community is without God. You see it in these, these last stories, the strong oppress the weak and the people live in despair. This is why Ruth is important. I'm not about to take six months on Ruth. I don't know how long he took. I just remember one Sunday, and that was a break where I just wasn't able to make Sundays. We were on this chapter. I think it's still chapter one. And I came back, and we're still on the same verses. I'm like, wow, we're going to be in Ruth for a while. All right, right? No, but Ruth is really important on a whole host of levels um, because Ruth is a remnant within the books of Judges. They run parallel. I don't know how much Eric went into all that, but they run parallel at a point. Ruth is an earlier story, but there were remnants of the Israelites and people. Now it happened to be, right, we understand Ruth wasn't even even a Hebrew. It gives us hope of this, this idea that there are people who actually see God for who God is. There's a hope. But as a people, as great and big, Israel had lost focus of God, even though there were still remnants. And that's why Samuel eventually becomes a reality, right? Um, they wanted to be like other nations to have a king, right? First Samuel 8, 7, God stated, they are not rejecting you to Samuel. He's, he's saying this to Samuel, but they are rejecting me. We have to be careful in our pursuits. We may have a good heart because we want to be like other churches, We need to have someone at the helm at all times, right? We push. We appoint. When God's sitting here saying, but I'm the head of the church. Why aren't you trusting on me?
Transitions are key with how we do it. The reality is, right, Israel failings and transition from Joshua to a nation, they lost focus on what matters most, God. They lost a relationship with him as a nation and chased after the desires of men. And they did what was right in their own eyes and did not truly believe in God of Abraham, but some image they found manageable to their liking. All right, there's the fun one, right? There's that positive. What do we do? How is this going to be helpful? That's where Jesus comes on the sin. There's sin. Whew, sorry, he did not sin. Uh, scene, that's the word I'm looking for. That is when he came on the scene, right? Because Jesus, and I'm going to fly through the life of Jesus and the importance of it, and I do not have time to break it down because we will be here for hours. Jesus was a transition back to God walking again with humanity. Welcome to the garden. This is the first thing that we have to understand. God once again walked with humanity. And instead of leading a nation of 12 tribes, he led 12 disciples. Right? Yes, we know thousands have followed him at times. And he said, hey, well, you know, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, hey, you can be a part of me. And they're like, oh, psycho, see ya. <laughs> and they were left down to 12. And then we have 100. And then we got the upper room. And, you're right, and we only have uh, just over 100 people in there. Fluxed, flowed in every different way. Jesus also was that example of how human and a divine relationship can exist. What God always desired. Jesus as a human walking on this earth, having a relationship with the Holy Spirit and the Father, doing these very things. He showed that you could have that personal relationship because God desired it. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Right? God invading this world. But it also came, as Jesus had to learn, you had to accept God as God. I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm not really willing to go to a cross anytime soon. You really have to be obedient to God to fulfill that mission. That was not a fun mission. He shows us that we can serve the Lord faithfully. And sincerely, the very things that Joshua told the nation they had to do as well. And he did not start his ministry until the Holy Spirit was upon him. His entire ministry, he was dependent on the Holy Spirit. Jesus in the twelve. Shows us this is where the divine and the community become important. Jesus poured himself into those who followed him, taught them the divine understanding of the law, prophets, and scriptures. He challenged the religious and the misunderstandings and the legalism, a.k.a. they are more sin-focused than God-focused. They show us that mistakes amongst the disciples were made, things that could be sin. I don't know. One guy got called Satan. <laughs> Can't really go further from grace in that moment. <laughs> Yet, he became a great leader within the church. An important one. The first one to actually give a sermon when the Holy Spirit arrived. It shows us that there is redemption for those who choose to align again. 
Jesus and Judas, though, is a warning shot to us as well. It shows us that even though you are all followers of Christ and in the deepest relationships, you can still betray him because you start focusing on the wrong thing. You forget who God is. You forget who Jesus actually is. Jesus and the crowd show us examples of how love and power attracts the lost. But they still have to accept the truth and come under God's rule to have eternal life. And Jesus and the Gentiles show us God's mission is for all humanity, not just a select few. No longer the enemy. No longer are they the enemy like the Hebrews faced in Canaan. Because Christ knew the real fight was spiritual. Then we get Jesus on the cross. This is the big transition. Now God has been on the world, but now we go from the old covenant to a new covenant. It is in full effect. Where redemption is made through the blood of Christ and submitting to Christ. Understanding Christ is our head and that we should be like Christ. Not one that's like a sterile relationship, but one that is dynamic and intimate like it was with the twelve. And that his death bridges that chasm, that sin put between us and God, so that once again we could serve the Lord, that we could be faithful, that we could have a deep, intimate relationship with God, one that he always desired since the garden, one where he walked and talked with Adam and Eve day in and day out. And Jesus and the resurrection shows us that now death has lost his power and we have a future with Christ the end goal of God is to have the eternal life with his creation. God has transitioned to spiritual in ways the earth had not seen. Those under the headship of Jesus no longer have the taste of sin's death like those who remain under Adam's curse. This was the start of Christ's conquest, but done fully under the actions of love towards humanity, under the power of the Holy Spirit. But his time had to pass as well. He too had to transition. For he knew him staying was the worst thing. Think about that. The son of God said it's better for me to leave. If I was 12, I'd be like, ah, it's a pretty, pretty hard argument. I don't know, God. Yeah, Jesus, I kind of like you around. It's kind of nice. But he knew. He knew exactly what had to happen because he knew it was limiting for him to stay. There had to be a different transition, a new transition that the world wasn't even ready for. But he had prepared his people. And this is where the the accession, when Jesus went up, I'm apparently having problems and tongue-tied and I'm going to take a drink. Yeah, Jesus went up in heaven, whatever that word is, because I can't say it today, and that's fine, because I'm human. Um, the leader leaves, but again, it's different, because there was a way for them to stay faithful to God with sincerity. Before he left, though, he did give marching orders, and he gave them Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. I should have had this marked, but I didn't. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What's really important is that the verses before was actually just them questioning, hey, when are you going to establish the kingdom of God? They were, again, focused on not God. They were focused on themselves. When are you going to do this, God? This is Israel. This is, we now know, we've seen it. You've conquered death. Oh, my goodness. What are, you, are you going to take it now? Are we going to see the full effect? And God's like, no, Jesus is like, no, that's not God's plan. There's a different plan. The mission has just started. The true conquest has just started. You, just like the people of Israel, were supposed to go and conquer this world and those around them, the camps and the small things, you too have a mission here in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. But before you do, he starts it all off when. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. There is an order and an effect in this because the first and most crucial part of all of Acts, and you will see it over and over again, is you need the Holy Spirit. In any transition in your life, if you are a Christian, do not, not have the Holy Spirit. I don't care what grammar that is. My kids will probably get me later on grammar because I get on them. But no, you have to have the Spirit. They weren't supposed to do anything, right? They sat in the upper room waiting until the celebration of Pentecost and everything like that. They had to wait before they could do anything, just like Jesus went through 40 days in the desert and did not start his ministry until he came back out. They were not supposed to do anything because I would greatly believe if they did, they would become just like Israel did when Joshua left them. They would have been trying to do things on their own, seeing what was right in their own eyes and not in God's eyes. They would have been slowly, slowly decaying over time because the Holy Spirit is that critical in our lives. You mean, again, when you see them interacting, there are times where they sit there with people and they're like, so you believe in Jesus. Have you received the Spirit? And they're like, no. Boom, let's pray. After... And, you know, in Pentecost, when, when they start speaking in tongues and Peter is sitting there, he gives a sermon, he does this beautiful job and, and he does all these things and they, and they have the Holy Spirit in them, empowering them, being the witnesses right at the beginning and the people that came, they believed, they repented and they received the Holy Spirit. It was so imperative in that church of that day, they would not even think you should be a believer without having the Holy Spirit with you at all times. Why would you want to go into battle in this world without the God in your, count, in your corner. And what have we done as a church, as a whole? The American church, thanks to modernity, modern world, right thinking, the spirit really has been getting removed more and more and more. I mean, think about it. How many of us did a formalatic salvation prayer how many of you after that got prayed for to receive the Holy Spirit? A few. Not many. It's not common anymore. I barely see it from churches. And that day, what are you thinking? Why would you send a new Christian into that world without the Holy Spirit? 
Why would you try to live this life, this Christian life, without the Holy Spirit? How can you be our witnesses without the power of the Holy Spirit? How can you live this life without a relationship with the Holy Spirit? We're in a spiritual battle. But it's not with people. It never was with people. Our fight are not people. That's actually a great tactic of, this, of Satan himself. We don't need to fight people. We do not need to defend Jesus. You know that? That guy who defended Jesus got rebuked by Jesus, and then Jesus put the guy's ear back on. Know that story? No point. Why? Because Jesus is like, if I needed to be rescued, I got a legion of angels I can call upon at any moment. If you think God needs your defense, go back. You might be making him into an image. He doesn't. But you need him. And you need that Holy Spirit. You need to depend upon him at all times. And you can't show Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that is who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is Jesus on earth to us, empowering the entire church globally. That is why Jesus had to leave. That is why that transition in the Pentecost and everything. The Spirit is, can be and will be everywhere and in every moment that where two or three are gathered in his name there, Jesus is in our midst. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is there in our midst. And the power of Jesus is available in that very moment. So yeah, there were differences between the Hebrews to coming Israel and the early church. One, the curse of sin wasn't broken yet. We get that with Jesus. The early church had that. He became their king, our king. They did what was right in God's eyes and not themselves, but they only could do that because the Holy Spirit empowered them. And they allowed the Holy Spirit to have authority over them personally and corporately. The reality is, and I don't know if you've ever heard of the term, the American church. There's a church in America, and then there's the American church. And I want to make sure you delineate between the time. We should always be a church in America. Being an American church is different in this world. They are more likely to be the Israels, the Israelites in Judges. It's tempting as we look to the American church because the American church says, hey, listen, just go bounce around. You can have pastors virtually. And I, hey, listen, I love being able to view things online. I love technology and all that kind of stuff. But hey, go find what fits for you. Go find another shepherd if, if one leaves. But I give caution to that wind, to that, that advice because, well, one, this body recognizes the Holy Spirit's role. Very much so. And there are some that do not. And I also say do not leave until the Spirit directs you or life directs you that way, which can be God as well. Just to leave because of a man isn't here on a pulpit anymore? I question and I challenge you to say, why? Who are you following? 
At large, the American church is turning to more of an agnostic Christianity too. They, they bend God, Jesus, the gospel to fit their liking. They use God for their end game in life. Saying, if I do this for God, if I give my tithe or I do this or I serve him, then God will give me this in the end. That is not how God works. The Holy Spirit is being removed and churches are looking to leaders outside the church to change humanity instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to empower them to share the gospel and letting God change people's lives. The messages are more about fear-mongering, sin-focused, without a relationship, or political-driven. We are looking for world systems, political, legal, business, whatever you want to say, who are under the ruler of this world, not under the rule of Christ to make godly changes that does not bring a soul to Christ. I don't care. I care about abortions, but I do not care about the legal change. It's only dropped abortions by 6% and not one soul has come to Christ. Not one. Tell me. Yet we call that a Christian victory. Why? If anything, people have been driven from the church because of it. Yet there were a group of students, a group known as Gen Z who shouldn't, who forsaken God in this country and all these different things in Asbury who were humbled before God, who sought a relationship with God and they impacted thousands and millions because of the Holy Spirit. What is our focus, church? Have you given the power to this world or are you giving power to God? What are we celebrating? This world will always have sin. I'm not here to change the world. That is God's job. My job is to have a relationship with him. My job is to ensure others have a relationship with him. My job is to ensure that is what I'm pursuing and to do the mission of God. I do not put my faith in any political person to do what's best for me. I put that in God. I put what I need, not because of the legal system, but because of God. And if any point those world rulers, those things start going against what God has us, I will be like Daniel and throw me in the lion's den because I won't give up my God. But we, as an American church, have started becoming dependent upon the world. We have made scripture legalistic and historical, not a world of how God has been with humanity trying to save and restore them back. Or the complete opposite has happened. We make it a guide that we can interpret how we sit, see fit today in our cultures, in our churches, for what fits us right. And neither one of those are God. And we got people living in despair, thinking that somehow the world is greater than our God and will corrupt the church, destroy it, and blah, 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 blah. If you are so worried about the world infiltrating the church, and I will dare say that you do not have the Holy Spirit ruling your church. In what world am I worried about this world? I serve a greater God. Oh, yeah, we can't tolerate sin. Oh, we've talked about that. If you remember my last things about sin and the Holy Spirit and all those things way back when. Oh, yeah, we can't tolerate that because that's the Holy Spirit saying you can't tolerate sin. That is going to separate you. 
But I am not worried about this world corrupting the church. Because the true church isn't corruptible. The true church is under the Holy Spirit. And sadly, though, the American church uses the Bible to oppress the weak in this world. This isn't just something current. We've seen this throughout history, starting with racism. I'll also say, though, when I sit here and I remember back when we would have the refugees and the whole idea of refugees, and then there was this fear-mongering and this idea of, oh, no, Islam is going to come to America. Oh, no, oh, no, they're going to corrupt this world and the the country, and oh, no, oh, no. And I sat there, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, God's bringing us a mission. We don't have to go. These are people, and yet the church was fighting against it. They were more worried about their lifestyles than the mission of God. They were more scared of Islam than God. That's not the church. That's the American church. And the American church fight the very people we are commanded to witness to about Jesus. Revelation is clear. Satan is warring against us as a dragon. He's used the two beasts to help that. And you know what his tactic is in the end? Because he, he knows. He knows exactly what we are here to do. He knows we're here to witness. And so what does he do? He uses the very people we are to love and witness to to turn against us and fight us. Why? Because he knows that if you focus on the person and fight that person, you'll never, ever be able to share the gospel. They won't receive it. And the American church... It's very combative. They fight people in the name of Jesus. When Jesus said, love them, show them the Holy Spirit, and let me, let them make the decision about me, but they are never our fight. So we must be different. Transitions are tricky. We are in a season, but if we're looking for human leadership, I'm not saying they're not important, but if we only look to human leadership, we're going to miss it. We're not like the business. We're not like government. We're not like military. We're not like any of the other world systems because our CEO, king, general, whatever you want to use as a title, sits on an eternal throne with an eternal mission and loves us greatly and wants us as a relationship. How why did the early church... You know, the early church lost its original leaders, did they not? All the people who have witnessed and seen Christ and yet turn a century after century, it thrived. Why? Because they were dependent on two things, the Holy Spirit and each other. We are meant to be a people of God. We are meant to be a reflection of God's love and power. The mission never stops. God's mission for the cape did not leave with a person. Honestly, the point of a fivefold ministry, the prophets, evangelists, uh, apostles, preachers, and teachers is, is never meant to do the work of God alone. They're actually just meant to equip you to do the work. That was the whole point. The man who stood here for 20 years teaching you and, and, and the woman that sat there and did the same thing, loving you, they are only there to equip you. The Holy Spirit empowers you. The Holy Spirit is the one that has the mission on the cape. We just get to be a part of it. So I challenge us today and challenge you personally. I think corporately you're in good hands. I think they do. Elders and and Ben, they are sitting here listening to the Spirit. You should know that. 
But I challenge you personally today. One, ensure that you have completely surrendered to God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit of the Bible, out of what's been manipulated and what is seen as good. That's number one. Number two, maybe you have done that, and maybe you feel like that, but maybe you've not ever received the Spirit or been prayed to receive the Spirit, or maybe you just feel like the Spirit really isn't ruling over your life right now, then I ask you to have that humility to come forward at the end of this and get prayer from Ben, the elders, myself, I don't care. Get prayed and receive the Spirit, because honestly, don't leave this door without it. You can't. You cannot make it without the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to say Jesus is Lord. You have to make him Lord and you have to receive the Spirit, the very thing he said we need. And finally, I ask you, if you are those people who have received the Spirit, who live with the Spirit, to remind yourself and ask the Spirit to empower you each and every day to show how you can share the gospel with love to those around you. And if not, with the power of God. That's what I leave with you today as we transition. The most important thing that you can do is to rely on the Holy Spirit through it all, no matter where you transition in life, because you will each and every day. Let's pray. Lord, I come before you. I thank you that you are a faithful God. I thank you you are our, our Father, one who doesn't just want to be a separate God, but one who wants a relationship with us. That you sent the bridegroom so we could be your bride. There's nothing but intimacy with you. Lord, forgive us for those moments where maybe we have allowed sin to creep in. Help us eradicate that and help us to focus on you and our relationship with you, knowing that that sin will be exposed and those things will fall away as we draw closer to you. But as we draw closer to you, so does that peace that no matter what this world brings, we have a peace in you. May our focus always be on you. And Holy Spirit, we ask to rule our hearts this day. Rule this church. May we not look for man to to guide us, but we always looked for you to guide us in our personal lives and our corporate lives. May you rule our hearts each and every day. And may you empower us to do the mission, a mission that started almost 2,000 years ago, a mission that we're still called to today to go out in this world, to preach this gospel, to disciple people, May your spirit give us the power and the words to do it each and every day, wherever we are. We ask this in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen.